Good morning, North Roanoke. Good to be with you. I uh, probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm a little tired this morning. Have you ever come to church and you've been a little tired? I'm a little tired. I, uh, and it's not because I went to watch Virginia Tech yesterday. I was, I was good yesterday. I did not scream because I knew I needed my voice today. And uh, I was very excited to be there and grateful to support the Hokies. But I know not all of you are Hokies, and that's okay. We love everybody here at North Roanoke Baptist Church. Christ died for all. And we worship Him and celebrate that fact. But last night, about 1.30, I heard a thud. And it, I usually am a hard sleeper, but for some reason I was up before Stacy this time. And it was my son who just... Boom! Right on, the, right on the top of his head. And um, anyway, I was up most of the night because after that, after hitting his head, and I don't know what he did to his neck, he didn't sleep well after that, and he was breathing weirdly, and I kept wondering if I was going to have to take him to the ER or something. Well, this morning, he's just fine. <clears throat> but his dad is a little... His, his, dad's, his dad's not quite fine. But we are in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12... And uh, a little bit tired or not, I am very excited to be with you in this text this morning. We conclude our service uh, with the Lord's Supper and then a hymn of invitation or a song of invitation. So this morning, as we understand, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. A couple things to keep in mind. If, If you're not a Christian, if you're just here this morning listening to the sermon for the first time, you don't know Christ, then... As we dispense the elements of the bread and the crushed fruit of the vine, if you would just let those pass, we'd appreciate that. If you've you've not yet been baptized, if you're not yet a member of of a Baptist church or a a church that um, practices baptism by immersion, in other words, dunking someone under the water and then raising them up, as that is the gospel. That's what has happened to us in Christ. We've been buried in Christ and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. If that's not true of you, if you would... Just graciously, kindly let the elements pass. We would appreciate that as well. But if you're not in those camps yet, guess what? That's where you need to be. So if you need to know Jesus as your Savior, or if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, and you need to walk with Him in baptism, then after we partake of the elements, we'll have a, what we call a hymn of invitation or a time of invitation. You have the privilege, the opportunity. You can come forward. We can talk about wherever you are spiritually, and I'd love to walk you through what it means to either give your life to Christ or to walk with him in this wonderful step of obedience that we call baptism. Having said all that, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Would you consider God's word with me this morning? Peter writes, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. 
But for those who disbelieved, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the gospel, that those of us who were nameless and outside of the promises of God have been brought near and we have obtained mercy through Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the implications of those deep truths this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Peter, the apostle writes from the city he calls Babylon over in verse 13 of chapter 5. Babylon likely is a reference to the city of Rome the center of worldly power at that time because Babylon was on decline and in decline and absolutely, uh, essentially irrelevant on the world stage at that time. And we know that Peter was in Rome from time to time. So he's likely writing from Babylon, symbolically representing Rome. And he's writing to Christians scattered throughout Northern, Northern Asia Minor. And these are Christians who are dealing with intensifying persecution for their faith. Five times in Peter, there are references to persecution. I'll just note two of them in verse 6 of chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. In verse 12 of chapter 4, he writes, Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you. For Peter, the way forward in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel is quite simple. And I submit to you, North Roanoke, we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. Now, we've lived in an American bubble for a while, have we not? Let's face it, we are anomalies on the world stage. Almost nowhere in world history would you dream of putting an ichthus or a cross on your business card thinking that it would bring you more business or that people would find you more trustworthy because you had a cross or a fish on your business card or on your business sign. This, this has been true in America, that to be Christian has been generally an acceptable thing, even a good thing, a positive thing, but we can... Read the Times, I believe. We can turn on the news. We can read the newspaper. We can walk into the public square. And we can discern that the world is shifting. That the bubble in which we have lived is very quickly popping. And our world is not too different from the world to which Peter writes. It's a world in which being a Christian is not a source of popularity as it once was in our country. So for us to live in a world that is hostile to the gospel, and we ought not be surprised that the world is hostile to the gospel. For the world rejected the Son of God, they will reject the people of God as well. 
So to be that church, to be the church that God is calling us to be, there's three things that Peter shows us we must do in this text. First, we must grow into God's salvation by feeding on his word. Secondly, we must be built into a spirit-indwelled priesthood who offers ourselves to God through Christ. And finally, we must share and show our new identity in Christ. First, we've got to grow up into the salvation that God has already given us through His Word. Verse 2 is a command. You must long for, desire, crave, pursue with love the pure, meaning unmixed, unwatered down Word of God. Why? Because this is the way we grow up into the salvation that God has for us. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of sanctification. Now, that's a big fancy word, but sanctification simply means becoming in practice what God has already declared us to be in truth. Now, when we, when we come to the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments, some of you are going to say, I, I don't feel worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper because of the stuff in my life. Now, to be sure, that should be an invitation for us to deal with indwelling sin, but let us be mindful of the fact that if you know Christ, He's declared you to be in truth, one who is in the very Son of God. Sanctification is the process as we hear the Word and passionately pursue the Word, where God, by His Spirit, takes the words that we read and hear, builds them into our heart, and lets us grow up into the very salvation that He has declared is already ours. Over in verse 23 of chapter 1, He says, We've been delivered to an entirely new life, an everlasting life. How? Through the living and enduring word of God. Our lives in Christ are no shorter than the word through which he's delivered us. An eternal and everlasting word of God. Verse 2 then raises a couple of questions for us. First, do we really want to grow up? It's hard to grow up, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I look at my kid's life and I'm like, man... They got a schedule, they got their clothes rolled out for them, their laundry's done for them, their room is clean for them. Now we're starting to work in some chores along the way, but there's something nice about just kind of vegetating from time to time, so it seems. So the question to the church that is raised by verse 2, I believe, is do you want to grow up? Do you want to be who God is calling you to be? And if you do, you've got to avoid the temptation to mix God's word with lesser things. See, some of you, you have a, a touch-and-go relationship with God's Word. Well, I'm going to touch home base on Sunday, get a, little, get a little healing feeling on Sunday, and then the next six days of my life, I'm going to neglect the message of God's Word. You're mixing it with the affairs of this world. And it'll never, you're never going to grow up as long as you have a tangential relationship with the Word of God. Some of us like to just get a, a verse or a thought and then work it into the patterns of our life and make the Bible conform to our lives. But the, the, the thrust of Peter's intention here is not for us to ask how to make the Bible apply to my life. Now that might be a paradigm shift for some of you this morning. But the question we are to ask is not how can I make the Bible apply to my life? Rather, we should come begging God Give me the strength and the courage to apply my life to the Bible. You see, the, the world that is enduring and that is real and that never ceases or fades away, the world that we should be applying ourselves to is the world that Peter tells us about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. 
He tells us we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain what? An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Are you living North Roanoke Baptist Church for that world? Are you just trying to copy and paste a few scriptures onto your existing life and make yourselves feel a little better about the life that you already have and the life you're already living? Do you see the difference? Which world are we living for? To live in this world, we've got to live in the world of the Bible, which means we must keep on craving God's Word. Doctrine and theology aren't just the domain of pastors. Doctrine and theology are for the church. This is why one of the key marks of a healthy church is what is called expository preaching, endeavoring to expose what God has said and revealing the Christ that it proclaims week after week after week, delighting afresh in the gospel through which God has set us apart as a holy nation and a royal priesthood and a chosen people who were not a people. God has done something miraculous in us through His Word. Why then do we so often neglect His word which is the second question I believe is raised by this text what if I really don't care for the word in verse 1 for us to ingest the word desire the word long for the word there's some things we have to do along the way we must put aside all malice all deceit all slander hypocrisy and envy wickedness craftiness uh, playing the part is hypocrisy coming into church and playing the role, but never really pursuing the word that God has given us. You can't fake it. You can't even fake it till you make it. You got to actually love the word. And for some of us this morning, the stuff and the junk that you've allowed to fester in your heart is preventing you from having a pure love for the unadulterated word of God. You have what I like to call spiritual acid reflux. My son had an awful case of acid reflux. When he was a baby, he still ha deals with it somewhat to this day. But there was a time in his life, in the first 10, 10 months of his life, where he stopped craving milk. That's a problem. It's a problem because you need the milk of the Word in order to live. You need milk for babies need milk in order to grow up and become who God wants them to be. And he stopped craving milk. Now some of you this morning... You're not craving the milk anymore because of all the junk that's going on in the inside. And the only way to deal with that is come to the Lord and confess it, get rid of it, and allow the Spirit to give you afresh a heart's desire to drink of His Word. But secondly, there's another reason you may not crave the Word of God. You may have never tasted of the kindness of the Lord in the first place. Verse 3. David writes in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Peter is reminding us that we know and find and enjoy the goodness of God in His Word. The mountaintop experience that so many Christians are seeking is not found in another event, but in the daily intake of God's Word. Let me say that again. How many of you no Christians who live their lives like this. 
It's always the next rally, the next event, the next big deal. And that's when God shows up and I give God a day or two and I go and I get all excited about God. And then as soon as I leave, I unhinge my life once afresh from the word of God, the principles of God, the precepts of God, and everything falls off again. God didn't design you for a roller coaster ride through the Christian life. He gave you the ability through his spirit to crave his word and to live on the mountaintop, if you will, as we encounter Christ in the Word day by day by day by day. Some of us never have tasted how good God really is to start with. You know, I love sushi. And for some of you, when I just said the word sushi, it made your stomachs turn. Because you know that sushi or sashimi involves the eating and the consumption of raw fish. I mean, who does that? That's why they made fire. Who eats raw fish? That's disgusting. That's one of the most disgusting things you could ever say. Daniel, you really eat raw? I don't like you anymore, Daniel. I do. I love sushi. In fact, I really like tuna sushi. And, but for the longest time in my life, I hated sushi. I hate, well, I thought I hated sushi because I hated the thought of sushi, right? The very thought of it. But I never actually even tried it. Right? I just hated the thought of it. And so I used to work for Virginia Tech as a fundraiser, and I went out to California, and I was taken to the number one sushi restaurant in North America. Guess what you have to do when you go to the number one sushi restaurant in North America? You have to eat sushi. There isn't another option. And so I'm terrified, and I'm with this gentleman, and what do you recommend? <laughs> and then he asked the million-dollar question, have you ever had sushi before? I actually, I haven't. Well, you should probably start slow. Just get some tuna. You're going to love it, I promise. And I was terrified. I was just absolutely terrified. And I, and I got that first bite. And I'm telling you, I promise you, it was better than the best piece of steak I had ever eaten in my life. I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. And now I love sushi. I if you say, hey, pastor, I want to take you to get some sushi. I'm there. Just a tip. <clears throat> some of you this morning don't love and desire the word of God because you still haven't tasted how good the gospel is. You see, the gospel seems and sounds disgusting at the outset. I have to acknowledge my sin before a holy God. I have to acknowledge that I can't work my way to heaven, that I'll never be good enough for God to love me. I could never do anything to make him accept me. I am unacceptable in the sight of God. But then God came and he wrapped himself in flesh and he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross and he gave his perfect life for me. He gave his atoning death for me and he was raised. He poured out his blood for me and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and that's the gospel. And when you taste the true gospel that God came and qualified me when I was unqualified myself, you can't help but keep on tasting of the word. Where a love for God's word languishes, the church dies. But where a love for God's word abounds, the church thrives. We must be lovers of the word of God. But secondly, we must be built into a spirit-indwelled priesthood who offers ourselves to God through Christ. In other words, to be the church, 
We've got to grow up together. The work that God wants to do in any individual here this morning can't be separated from the work that he wants to do in every single one of us. And we certainly need one another. Why do we need one another? Because we are the community who believes in the one that the world has rejected. The living stone, rejected by men, but precious to God. We've been made into a spiritual house or a temple. Now, I don't know about you. This temple, by the way, rests on Christ the living stone. Do you you struggle with living stone? I do. Because it's a paradox, right? (laughs) Who's ever seen a living stone? But, but the stone is a metaphor for Christ, the living Christ, who is like a stone. How? He is the fixed and immovable basis of God's salvation, chosen by God in eternity past for the very purpose of giving us God's saving presence. He is precious, which means he is costly. He's expensive. It took God himself giving himself for us in order for us to be saved. Every time someone trusts in Christ, the living stone, They are added to God's spiritual house, the temple of God's spirit, as Paul describes it. We're made into a people who manifest God's saving presence on the earth. And how is it that we show people how great our God is? He's built us into a priesthood. Now, some of you are like, I thought the priesthood was dead. When Jesus came, he's the high priest. Therefore, we don't need priests anymore. And in one sense, that's exactly right. But in another sense... We've been invited up the mountain, so to speak. Go back to Exodus 19, verse 6, where he invited the Israelites up the mountain, but instead of going all up, they said, Moses, why don't you do that? That God seems pretty scary to us. But in Christ, we've all been invited up the mountain to be priests to our God, not individuals going our own way, but one priesthood coming together to offer a sacrifice to God over and over again through Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have any sheep or goats or cows this morning to offer to God. The reason we don't is because we are the offering. The Old Testament priesthood was for offering sacrifices to atone for sin and guilt, but we don't have to offer those sacrifices anymore because Christ has been sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, Hebrews 9, 28. But we have still been fashioned into a priesthood, and the work of sacrificing is an intricate, meticulous, holy work. It's not something we do flippantly. It's not something that we take casually. When we come and gather in, in, as a corporate body on Sunday mornings, as we gather through the week, as we go throughout the week and disperse, we are coordinated through the connectivity of the Spirit to offer ourselves to God corporately demonstrating his worth to a world that is rejecting his salvation. We can offer these offerings because of Christ. We can offer them, notice, verse 5, they are acceptable to God, how? Through Jesus Christ. Through him, we've been qualified to offer what we could not offer otherwise. We've been qualified to give him ourselves. What is it? What are these sacrifices that we can offer in addition to ourselves? We offer him ourselves in faithful and devoted service on behalf of one another and the world. We offer him a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, Hebrews 13, verse 15. We help each other to live every ounce of our lives for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the 
Father through Him. We offer Him sacrifices of gratitude for what we've received in Christ. Psalm 50 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. You will honor me. That's the sacrifice that the Father seeks. He seeks the honoring and the prizing of His Son. Which is why in verses 6 and 7 and 8, Peter shows us by quoting Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14. He shows us that those who trust in Jesus obtain through God a value that they do not have of their own. Look at verse 6, excuse me, verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. But unfortunately, those who disbelieve those who throw Jesus out as the foundation stone. Interesting, is it not, that the builders who should have known the stone that would be proper and fitting to build a house on, the builders threw Jesus away. And the very stone that the builders threw away is the cornerstone, is the stone that God chose as the foundation of his salvation. And Peter shows us that we either put our faith in Jesus, the foundation stone, or we dash our foot against him and those who stumble over Christ in disobedience to God's word are destined for destruction how is this how is it that those who stumble over Christ are destined by God for destruction how could a all-good all-loving Heavenly Father condemn anyone to hell it's a good question a question that's asked of me very frequently. How could this happen? And here's how this happens. It happens because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is first and foremost about the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing more important to God than the salvation of sinners is the glory of His own Son. The Father won't send His Son into a lost and dying world to live a perfect life for you, to die a perfectly atoning death for you, to be raised, seated in the right hand of the Father, give you His Word, which declares all of this is true, and show you the glory of Son and let you walk past it and say, I don't need Jesus. I don't need the cross. God won't let anyone undermine or mistake or pass by the sacrifice of His all-glorious Son, the gospel, before it is about the salvation of sinners, is about the glory of King Jesus, the foundation stone over whom we either stumble or in whom we find our life. We honor this Son by telling of what He has done. What has this Son done? What has God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, done for you? I once was blind, but now I see. I was lame, but now I walk. I was dead, but now I live in Christ my King. Christ is honored in His church. He gets the sacrifices that He seeks when we never get over the gospel. Why do we sing songs that retell the gospel over and over and over again? Because we bring Him a sacrifice that is worthy of the God we 
we serve. We keep offering ourselves to God through Jesus. How? By cherishing and rehearsing and celebrating and delighting in the gospel. No matter how bad your day, no matter how bad your week, no matter how bad your month, no matter what storm or season of life you find yourselves in, if you have trusted in Christ the cornerstone, you are an heir of God. You are a beneficiary of the gospel. You have been given the privilege and the opportunity, indeed the responsibility, to delight in Christ the Son. Which leads us to our final point this morning. We must share and show God's story of who we are in Christ. We must share and show God's story of who we are in Christ. In verse 9, Peter draws a contrast between the church and those who have been doomed to destruction because they tripped over, they stumbled over Jesus. We're not doomed no matter how difficult this life seems if we have trusted in Christ. In Christ, verse 9, we are a new humanity, a chosen race, a chosen group of people that's not based upon skin color, it's not based upon occupation, it's not based upon income, it's not even based upon whether you like the Cavaliers or the Hokies. It's not based upon any of that. It's based upon what God has done through Christ. He has chosen us as a new people for Himself. He has also made us not just a holy priesthood, but a royal priesthood. Why a royal priesthood? Whenever you hear the word royal, you should think of the word king. Because we have been saved to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is now building a heavenly kingdom that though we cannot see it, it is very real and it is on the advance to the ends of the earth right now. And we are priests to our God in that kingdom. And as we offer up the sacrifice of praise for who the Son of God is and what He has done, His gospel moves forward and more people come into the kingdom and the church grows thereby. In Christ, we are set apart as a holy nation, marked off from the darkness of worldliness. Our lives are so distinct. Look at this at verse 11. Look what he calls us. As aliens and strangers in this world. You see, the word holy means set apart or marked off or separate from. We should, in this world, feel as though we are aliens and strangers to the world system. Do you ever feel that way? God, I, I just, I don't feel like I belong here. Because the more I pursue your word and your scripture and long for your gospel and for the garden life that you're delivering us to in Jesus Christ, I struggle sometimes, Lord, with being in this old world. That's a good thing. Conversely, by contrast, if you find that you're right at home in this world, you don't struggle with all the things that the world wants to throw at you and ask you to do? Well, that is a problem. As Christians, as we pursue more and more and more the kingdom of God, the world seems stranger and stranger and stranger to us. How does that hymn go? As the things of this world grow strangely dim, we grow in the light of His glory and His grace. We're a holy nation. Finally, in Christ, we are God's own possession. Acts 20, 28 reminds us that Christ purchased us with His own 
blood. Not rented blood, not borrowed blood. We've been purchased with the blood of the Lamb. If you are a follower of Christ, you are not a timeshare property. Giving God a day of the week, giving kids a day of the week, giving your bride a day of the week, giving your grandkids a day of the week, you belong exclusively to God. Oswald Chambers said it this way, the passion of Christianity is that I deliberately sign away my own rights and become a bond slave of Jesus Christ until I do that, I do not begin to be a saint. And in verse 10, we see that our very names were those who were not a people and we had not obtained mercy. But in Christ, we've obtained the mercy of God, the forgiveness of our sins, the washing away of our sins through Christ our Savior. And God has done all of this. Why? In verse 9, so that we would proclaim or celebrate or declare or publish the excellencies. Now, what does that word mean? It just means the power of God to make a difference. The excellencies of Christ to move us from the world's darkness into the light of God. So we're to put on display what God has done in our lives. That's what God has called us to do. The word means to publish. Did you know most of the people in this room are publishers? Do you have a Facebook account? Does anybody in here know what Facebook is or am I the only one? We, there's probably half of us this morning or more are probably publishers. We have an opportunity every day, even in this sermon, if you want to do a Facebook amen, you can go publish something right now. You can go celebrate something right now. Now, let me ask you a question. If I took the last 12 months of your Facebook feed, would I be able to conclude that you're a chosen race? Would I be able to conclude that you are a holy nation? Would I be able to conclude that you've been set apart for the purposes of God, purchased through the blood of Christ? Or would I conclude that you may talk about Jesus, but he's made absolutely no difference in your life? If I can scroll through your Facebook feed, and it looks just like an unbeliever's Facebook feed, there's a problem. That doesn't mean you don't take pictures of your kids. It doesn't mean you don't love your family. It doesn't even mean you don't take a few pictures at a hokey football game. But have you taken the opportunity on your Facebook feed to show the world that you're different? And have you taken the opportunity to show the world on your Facebook feed who it is that made the difference? We've been saved to publish what God has done. He took us, not a people, not obtained mercy, and he transferred us through his blood into a people who are qualified not only to know him, but to enjoy him and live with him forever. Does your life tell that story? Secondly, we were saved to live out our new identity in Christ. Not just to publish it, but to live it out. Why? Because look, the world is observing us. Because Look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, meaning those who don't know Jesus yet. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, oh, those Christians, they're just a bunch of negative Nancys. Oh, those Christians, they just don't like people. But as they slander you, as they see your good deeds, in other words, they're watching you. We're being watched, North Roanoke Baptist Church. As they observe you, 
What may they do? They may glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you live your life like that? Do you live your life as a member of a priesthood, as an ambassador of Christ for the gospel, publishing what he's done in your life and living it out in such a way that the world can see God has made a difference in that person's life? Simon Kistemacher says it this way. Our lifestyle should be distinctively Christian so that it serves to encourage others to follow our example. North Roanoke Baptist Church, if we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be, we must crave God's Word. We must offer ourselves to God through Christ. And we must share and show our new identity in Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gospel. We recognize this morning, Lord, that the very act of giving you thanks for the gospel is an offering that is acceptable in your sight because of what Christ has done and because of who Christ is. Lord, the good news, the good story that you came and substituted yourself for us is something that we simply cannot get past. We cannot get over, nor do we want to. Father, help us to be a people where the gospel is ever on our lips and its implications are ever demonstrated through our lives. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, remind us afresh that it's not of works that I have done, but all of the work of Christ our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite our deacons to come as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. As we do that, I want to ask you just a few questions that you might be considering before you plan to partake of the bread and the crushed fruit of the vine in just a moment. Do I crave the pure milk of God's Word? Do I really crave the pure milk of God's Word? And if the answer is, well, sometimes or maybe, I'm not sure, I really don't want to talk about that right now, then here's the good news. <laughs> if you belong to Christ, you can start fresh right now. The Lord will restore that craving to you. And secondly, does my life declare the reality of my new identity? That I've been born again to, as a whole new person into a whole new kingdom. And I submit to you for most of us this morning, including your pastor, the answer is probably mixed. Some, some ways yes, some ways not so much. Just ask the Lord to help you. And then join us as together we offer a sacrifice of praise to God for what Christ has done in qualifying us to be worshipers of God.